listening to the Bible Brush Up podcast. We are currently going through the series 90 Days of Promise, which follows the literature after the conclusion of the Torah. So Joshua and Judges, and uh, we've concluded Joshua. We're looking at Judges now. This is our second episode, and we did some introductory remarks in the previous episode, but now we're going to take a look at some of the ways that we can dig a little deeper in our Bible reading. Uh, we don't just want to advance a bookmark. We don't just want to have stories that are memorized like children do in most Sunday school settings. Uh, we want to actually dig deeper and see what it is that God intends for us to take away from these passages. And um, the Bible is rich and just full of detailed information that we never can exhaust. And so let me give you a few pointers and tips as we look at some of the judges in the book of Judges, which by the way, that's where it gets its name. God provides judges after the cycle that we discussed in the last episode um, that spirals downward into greater depravity throughout the book of Judges. They are in God's uh, good standing, but then they rebel, then they cry out, then they are delivered, and it all starts again. And so throughout that process, judges are raised up to deliver the children of Israel from the, the oppression that comes upon them as a consequence of their wrongdoing. But how do we get this deeper information and not just treat these as stories? Well, one of the tools I think that we should use is um, the tool of repetition. We look for repetition because if something is repeated, then that means it's important. Not only is it important because it's being mentioned numerous times, but it's important because it connects material together. Uh, it allows us to uh, connect parts of Deuteronomy to judges because of a repeated phrase. One of these phrases that I think you probably have picked up on by now is that the people did, quote, evil in the sight of the Lord, unquote. And um, that is a phrase that shows up every time the children of Israel rebel against God. Um, and so it's repetitive within the book of Judges, which shows its significance for the thematic treatment of the book, but it's also significant outside of the book of Judges. Judges is not the first book to use that phrase, that the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, in Numbers 32, there is an entire generation that dies out that does not get to enter the promised land, and it states in Numbers 32 that that was because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 4.25, there's a portrayal of idol worship and the consequences that come upon the people because of that, and it states that they did evil in the sight of the Lord by worshiping idols, which is exactly what is taking place inside the book of Judges. Uh, Deuteronomy 31.29, Moses predicts that the Israelites, after his death, would engage in idol worship and they would do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we have all of this preloaded and ready to use by the author of Judges by the time these events transpire. And so when he uses this language, it reminds us as the readers that these expressions have already been used in the warnings that have been given to Israel, and yet they are still doing what they were not supposed to do. Fortunately for the Israelites and for us, God is a gracious God, and so we get a repeated phrase that follows this um, first phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that second phrase is, when the people cried out, God raised up a deliverer or savior, uh, but that reference to them crying out. 
uh, is a reference that is repeated within the book of Judges and outside the book of Judges. Uh, we get this reference even back in the Exodus narrative um, when the people are in Egypt and they are under the Egyptian slavery and they need a deliverer and God is going to call and raise up a uh, judge for them and his name is Moses. And so God hears their cry when they are being oppressed, and that does not change as you go through. Uh, it starts out kind of romantic. You know, God sees his people who he loves, and he comes to their aid in their time of need, and he makes a people out of them. They become a spouse to him, as the Old Testament words it, and also they often reference Israel as being the son of God. And we see this familial tie. There's closeness and intimacy, and it's... And just a beautiful picture of God saving his people. But as you go through Judges, it becomes less beautiful because the people keep abandoning their God. And God keeps coming back to them and coming back to them and saving them and saving them. And on one hand, uh, we're thankful that God is so merciful and gracious. But on the other hand, it's sort of an ugly bride at this point. She's being very unfaithful and she's continuing to go to other gods. So it, it's like a wife who continues to go to other men and to be intimate with them instead of intimate with the one that they are betrothed to. Um, and that's the picture we have in the book of Judges. But that repeated theme reminds us of God's grace and God's compassion, even on a people who continuously do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so look for repetition as you go through the Bible and as you study. Uh, it will help you to dig deeper and to see uh, more meaningful aspects of God's word. Now, other things that we need to look for are relationships between uh, words and between concepts. We look for contrasts and comparisons. Uh, we also want to look at word study. We want to look at certain words and what they mean, and do they have uh, anything interesting to contribute in the original language. And uh, you probably won't get that always just by looking at the word in English. Sometimes you'll need to have um, a companion book along with you, either a commentary or maybe a Bible dictionary uh, or a uh, concordance. Those are tools that you can use to help look at wordplay. And we'll talk about some of that here in just a second as we look at some of these judges. Um, then you can always look at figures of speech that are in the scripture. Uh, figures of speech sometimes don't mean exactly what they say. Just like I might say, hit the lights, I don't mean for you to go punch the lights. Uh, if I say I'm going to go hit the hay, that doesn't mean I'm going to go punch the hay. That means I'm going to go take a nap. And those are figures of speech that we use in our current language that if you took them at face value, you would misinterpret what's being said. Sometimes the scripture uses figures of speech, and if we don't grasp those and we don't understand what exactly they're getting at, uh, we'll miss some of the meaning there in the passage. And uh, always numbers are important, looking at the significance of numbers and seeing comparisons and contrasts based on the numbers being used. And uh, all of that might seem like an impossible task, but let's just put these to practice real quick. Let's look at the story of Othniel. Now, when we read the story of Othniel found in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, um, it's a very short story, and we have this king who's raised up from Mesopotamia who comes and oppresses the people because of their sin. Now, we have repetition here, and the first thing we see in this story is the figure Othniel, who's already showed up in the Bible. We already have references to him. Uh, if you go back to the book of Joshua, Caleb was one of the faithful people, him and Joshua, who had entered the promised land, spied it out, and said, yes, we can take it. 
but no one else believed them, and so everyone else in the older generation dies out, but not Caleb and not Joshua. So Caleb and Joshua, they enter the promised land, and when they do, Caleb requests the uh, area of Hebron, and it's a place where there are giants in the land. And so Caleb goes in and drives them out, and there's a nearby town called Debir, and Caleb asks if there's anyone willing to go in and to drive out the inhabitants. And this guy named Othniel shows up, and the scripture tells us in Joshua that it's his brother. And now we get another piece of information that it's his younger brother. Now, we could have concluded that through deductive reasoning, but it's good to see it explicitly stated as well, because it, it, this helps you just visualize what happened. Okay, Caleb and Joshua are going into the promised land, spying it out, and they come back and they say, yes, we can take it. And everybody else says, no, we cannot. But on the sideline somewhere is a young Othniel. He's not old enough to be one of the contributors to this decision. He's a younger brother. And so there he is. Maybe he's uh, 10 years old. Maybe he's 14. We don't know. Uh, but there he is seeing his older brother stand up against the crowds and stand up for what's right and put his trust in the Lord. And because of that, we can assume perhaps that maybe Othniel is influenced by his older brother, his older brother who stood strong in the Lord, his older brother who is standing strong in the Lord even in the promised land at this period. And so he goes in and he drives out the inhabitants of Hebron, and now Othniel rises up and he says, I want to do what Caleb did. I want to be faithful like Caleb was faithful. And so he goes and he drives out the inhabitants of Debir. And then God's not done with him, though. Uh, his faithfulness is being put to use even later. Though he has become um, the mini king of a mini village somewhere in the middle of Judah, he is now going to be promoted to the sole leader of the entire nation of Israel because he was faithful in those little things. And so this younger brother, Othniel, is raised up at this time of need, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And so this isn't just him fighting in his own strength. This is something supernatural. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he judges Israel. He goes out to war, and he delivers Israel from the king of Mesopotamia, and they prevail, and uh, he he leads them and gives them rest for 40 years. Um, and that 40 years, we've seen 40 years before. The children of Israel wandered 40 years in the wilderness, lost. And yet now, because of this leader and because of God's mercy and delivering them from the Mesopotamians, they get 40 years of rest in the land. And so that's one way that we looked at repetition, one way we compared um, Caleb and his brother to the references made now and judges to what has already been said about them. And uh, we're just looking at the timeline, and then it allows us to fill in some of those gaps. You know, maybe you've never sat and thought about Othniel, the little kid on the sideline watching Big Brother at work back in uh, the Torah. But now we have this understanding based on what comes later and these references and descriptions given to him, uh, which descriptions are important. If there's ever a description, a word that describes something that didn't have to be there for you to just know the story, then it's probably significant. Remember that they didn't have paper to just wad up and throw away. They didn't have room for wasted space. 
And so almost every time there's a description, it probably is contributing to the deeper theological information that you need to know. Uh, that is never more true than it is in the story of Ehud. Ehud is a character that comes out of Benjamin. And Benjamin, uh, it, it's, well, I won't get ahead of myself. We'll talk a little bit about Benjamin here in a little bit. Um, but they're not going to be the highlight of Judges in the good way. They're kind of going to be the eyesore of Judges by the end. But Ehud, it says, is a left-handed man. And you may be asking yourself, why are you telling us that? And if you're ever asking yourself, why are you telling us that uh, to your copy of God's Word, then there's probably a reason they're telling you that. Just like they turn around and describe Eglon, the king of Moab, uh, as a very fat man. And you may say, well, why in the world are they telling us that? Well, there may be a good reason that they're telling you that. For one thing, this whole story presents the Moabites as stupid, in a sense. It, prov it, it provides a satire look at um, the whole situation. The Israelites are clever and crafty. The Israelites are capable and able. And yet God has raised up these ignoramuses and these imperfect figures to rule over Israel because of Israel's sin. But now that it's time for deliverance, God raises up uh, this man named Ehud who is left-handed. Quickly going back to the idea that you need to do word study, if you do a word study on this phrase that uh, is translated in many translations as left-handed, it would probably render it more likely that he is ambidextrous. It's not that he is predominantly left-handed, but it, it is that he is capable with the left hand as well as his right hand. Um, but regardless, we see this description uh, of Ehud that comes in very handy, because after Ehud has brought tribute to Eglon, uh, which, by the way, Eglon's name is uh, very close to the word cow. And so we are looking at a fat cow, um, and that's how God is depicting, or the author of Judges and God inspiring it, is depicting the Moabites. They are led by a fat cow, and now this ambidextrous, capable warrior from Benjamin is showing up. He pays tribute to Eglon, but then he comes back and he shows up with a dagger that has been crafted for this occasion. It's a double-edged sword, it says. It's very short. Um, the word double-edged, if you were to go and do a word study on that, it would also mean uh, double-mouthed. And so this entire description of Ehud and Eglon it kind of has double meaning throughout it. There's uh, many occasions where something is said, and it can mean one or two things. When Ehud shows up and tells Eglon that he has a secret message for him, the word in Hebrew for message can mean a word, or it can mean a thing. And so there's double meaning there. And the king obviously interprets it as a message, or he wouldn't have invited him in. Um, but he wants a secret message. He wants to know what's going on. And so he invites Ehud in. But Ehud has no secret message, like words for him. He has a secret thing for him, which is a dagger that he's going to stab him with. Uh, 
Um, but the fact that he's left-handed, or at least ambidextrous and can use his left hand, gets him past security. If you're going into the airport today, you're going to walk through a, a detector of some sort that's going to beep if you have any kind of weapon on you. But they didn't have that sophisticated technology back then, and so they had to pat people down and to look in their sheath. And so almost every person that would have been right-handed, especially those that were being used, sometimes left-handed people were looked down upon and they weren't used in battle and they they were kind of outcast. And so uh, for this person to be the leader and to show up, he probably had a sheath on his um, left hip for his right hand that would have held a sword and they might have confiscated that or he would have just taken it off and laid it down before he went before the king. But because he has this inconspicuous other blade that's the double-edged, double-worded, double-mouthed uh, sword that is stuck somewhere on his right hip. It's, it's a place they would have not normally looked for a blade, and they certainly wouldn't have thought to look for it without it being huge and, you know, a giant sword that would have come down past one's outer garment. Um, and, and so there's just no reason for them to look for that, and the king is very... Uh, trusting of this man already. He's already come and paid tribute. They've already met face-to-face -face prior to this. And so Eglon invites Ehud into the, um, to the chambers, these private chambers. Uh, which, by the way, I didn't say this already, but another interesting thing when you do um, comparison and contrast and look at word study, um, Benjamin, who is depicted here as being a left-handed man, well, he comes from Benjamin, and Benjamin means the son of my right hand. And so there's a little bit of irony here. The son of my right hand shows up, and he's left-handed, and he's going to do everything with his left hand, not with his right hand. But it's still God's way of dealing with the situation. Um, and so we get this uh, this scenario where he comes in, and he says, I have a secret word from God. Um, once again, a secret thing from God, and he pulls out the dagger, and he sticks it into his belly, and it absorbs the entire thing, and dung comes out. And so he just completely penetrates the man's intestines, and then it, it just, it's a grotesque end to this fat cow who is ruling over the Israelites. But God's putting an end to that. He never intended for Eglon to be the supreme reigning figure over Israel. It was a temporary solution to the problem of Israel's sin. And so then Ehud escapes, and the chamber guards are standing around, waiting and waiting and waiting, and it says, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And so they think that maybe he's um, maybe going to the bathroom, maybe he is cooling down in this uh, play, because he is set up here in Jericho, and Jericho can be quite hot at certain times of the year, and so they're thinking maybe he's just cooling down, but they wait until they're embarrassed, and then they go, and they find their captain dead on the floor in a pool of his own dung, and his own blood, and everything else. And so, wow, what a story that we have. You can make a movie about this one, um, but all of this comes from Benjamin, and then Benjamin, Ehud, goes and he gathers the Ephraimites, and they go down and they fight against the Moabites, and they defeat them, and they get rest for 80 years this time. So it's double the time that was previously won for them, and that's not going to be the case every time. Um, but it, 
it's kind of like in these first initial rebellions, God is extending mercy uh, to a great degree. Uh, but as they continue to sin against him and repeat the same offenses, these things are not going to continue to get better for Israel. They're going to get worse. Uh, but I will point out one more thing that I think is significant about this story. And I, I just was referencing that the man from Benjamin went and got the Ephraimites. He didn't go get all of Israel. It was Ephraim and this Benjamite leader who goes and fights. And you see this unity between Benjamin and Ephraim here. But when you get to chapter 19 in the book of Judges, you're going to see a story. I said no spoilers in the last episode. Here's the spoiler already. Um, but there is a Ephraimite who goes down to Judah, and he picks up a concubine, and he is traveling back to his hometown to Ephraim. But along the way, he stops in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the men of Benjamin are wanting to kill him. They take his concubine. They rape her and rape her over and over until she's dead. And so he takes his concubine, cuts her up into pieces and mails pieces of her out to every tribe. And every tribe responds by taking up arms and marching to where this came from and to find out what happened. And they end up going and killing off the people of Benjamin in this area because of how evil they were. And so we end the story of Judges with civil war. And really, it's a civil war between Benjamin and Ephraim. Whereas in the early stages here, God raises up this Benjaminite and he unites with Ephraim for a victory over God's enemies. And it just shows you the digression of the people and judges and how the nations early on had some unity and worked together in some ways. But as this thing plays out and as it spirals out of control, the iniquity and the sin permeates the, the tribes and the entire region of Israel until they just get to rock bottom, which is where the book of First Samuel will pick up. Uh, but we'll stop there for today, and we'll talk a little bit more about these things as we go forward. But just remember that uh, there are things we compare and contrast. There are repetitions to look for, word studies, figures of speech, numbers, just like there are 12 judges in this book, 12 oppressors in this book, and there are 12 tribes of Israel. These things are all significant, and they help us to piece things together and to remember um, different teachings within God's Word, and they show us how artistic and complete God's Word is as God himself inspires it and keeps it all together for his glory. We'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.